are things in Glockamara Is that little brook still leaping there? Does it still run down to Donny Cove? Through Killybegs, Kilkerry and Kildare How are things in Glockamara? Is that willow tree still weeping there? Does that laddie with a twinkling eye come whistling by? And does he walk away sad and dreamy there? Not to see me there. Hello and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast, Coppola cast uh, season. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brent Connolly. All right. So, back in action. Thanks for the long wait. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the world is ending and everything. It was hard to get together to do the podcast. But yeah. now now that we're in the post-apocalypse, the, the apocalypse happened, we're, uh, we're the okay. The post-apocalypse <laughs> where all we have to watch are bloodshot at the movie theaters <laughs> and at home, Finian's Rainbow. <laughs> Uh, Finney's Rainbow. Uh, yeah, let's talk about it, but let's first talk about our wine. Right, we have a very we... interesting wine today. Yeah, what are we drinking? This is the. Uh, this is an interesting idea. It's basically two vineyards together to make one wine. So this is the Un- Unita Blends, a Francis Ford Coppola winery, and a Becker Vineyards collaboration. And it's a Camp Savion. Savignon. Savignon. <laughs> Cabernet Savignon. Uh, and let me just read what it says. Um, it's 50% Coppola wine, 50% Becker wine, 2017. Passion for wine and innovation sparked this ingenuity to bring together the unexpected. Two acclaimed wineries making a great wine come together for something even greater. Francis Ford Coppola Winery and Becker Vineyards create a unique blend you will not be able to resist. This cab bursts with flavors of dark cherry, fruit, and cocoa with fragrant earthy minerals and toasted bread on the finish. Interesting toast. I've never seen toasted bread. toasted bread. Delicious with a goat cheese tart, braised beef short ribs, or a blue cheese burger. Kick up your boots, roll up your sleeves, and enjoy. Mm. I and like I, a blue cheese burger. <laughs> Do you? And uh, what's what's interesting is Be- so Becker Vineyards is here in Austin. They're an Austin winery, or I guess technically Dripping Springs or whatever you go out. But it's very good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a long way away from Austin, actually. <laughs> well, it's like forty minutes, but. But, you know, eventually Austin will engulf all these places. Uh, but, yeah, a lo- local winery. Very good. And, and this uh, mixed with the Coppola, it's, uh, it's delightful. It is. I do taste the cherries. Yeah. The toasted bread. I have to think about that one. Yeah. Um, toasted bread does not jump out at me. Though I do see this red pairing well with the things it suggested. This would go good with... Blue cheeseburger. And blue cheeseburger. God, I really want beef one Beef ribs. <laughs> and beef ribs. Who makes a good blue cheeseburger in Austin, Texas? Um, I do it. Your home? home. <laughs> your your <Yeah>. house? <laughs> Get the right ingredients from HEB. Yeah. Which you can't do right now. I've been really enjoying all these couple of wines, i got to say. Like, I, I've always seen them in the store, but I never thought to get them. And... But they're good. They're totally Me too. good. Um, I've never really thought too much about like a vineyard's collection. You know, like they've got different, all the different types and styles of wine in varying degrees. And maybe one year is different than the other year, even if it is the same, yeah. uh, you know, Cab or Pinot Noir or whatever. Um, but yeah, as we're going through the different types of wine from this one vineyard it's i'm noticing the differences i don't think i could articulate them <laughs> but i'm, I'm getting a, a, a um, i'm growing more appreciative of a uh, vineyarding i hope which that, is not a word i hope that there is a podcast by like true wine aficionado nerds but then they also try to talk about movies but they don't know how to talk about movies i think that'd be funny <laughs> if they're like they can go into the intricate detail of the wine but then they're like uh yeah um, two thousand one it was it was good yeah it was it was it was, it was, it was cool, cool. <laughs> like the reverse of how we talk about the wine we're like yeah it tastes good 
Yeah, because you know there's going to be like because there's obsessives for everything, and you know there's going to be some wine nerds in the world that like must have all of blah blah blah, and they're really you know picky about all the things, and they know all the facts. And yeah, well, know. we are drinking this uh, from a decanter. I know. See, we're getting a little fancier. Yeah. It it is quite fancy. It feels like we're in one of them Italian restaurants. I love it in the Italian restaurants where they have the wine decanter and it's got that horrible like straw. Like that basket, <laughs> that wine basket that yeah. it's around to kind of try to make it look fancier. Probably because they just poured in like a $3 like house red, but they wanted to make it look nice. So they put in the, the basket decanter. Anyways. See, we have to fill this in because it's been a month and a half since we've watched Finian's Rainbow. Stuff came up. So but, uh, we, we, have we, to, uh, <laughs> we have to uh, wreck our brains. Uh, uh, luckily, I, I, re, I more recently watched the Coppola audio commentary, so it, it all... It all came back uh, to me. Um, whose turn is it to try to describe the plot of this movie? It is my turn. Oh, boy. Oh, I, good. Um, oh, good. Gosh. I would almost rather summarize Paris is Burning. Or is Paris Burning? <laughs> that one was a hard one to Again, summarize, too. There's so much going on in this movie. So, almost as much as that war epic. And it says... Get, get to scattered. it. Let's, All right. Let's do it. I got the Wikipedia up in front of me. Oh, that's cheating. Well, even if I had seen this yesterday. <laughs> okay, so first a bit of background. Coppola makes you a big boy now. His, like... Not his first movie, but his, like, first, uh, like, auteur film. This is him doing what he wants to do and the way he wants to do it. And it's young and it's fresh and it's hip. And he gets a... Uh, a deal from Seven Arts, the company he had been working for as a staff screenwriter to do like an adaptation of The Scarlet Letter, which never happened, the rain, direct The Rain People, and then do some other movie that didn't happen. But then, out of nowhere, Variety or The Hollywood Reporter announces young Francis Coppola's next film is Finian's Rainbow! Uh, and... The way that happened is that Warner Brothers have been trying to make this musical for a while. It first hit Broadway in 1947 and was a hit. And Coppola had not seen the musical, but he was familiar with the, the soundtrack. Like his family had the soundtrack, so he listened to that music a lot as a kid. And his dad really liked it. And he's like, I can do something, a movie that my dad will like. To impress his parents is what he's yeah. doing. And the studio was like, well... They wanted to update it, set it in present time, 1967, and they saw Coppola as like a young hippie. It's like, we'll get this young hippie kid, <laughs> he'll modernize it, and, you know, that'll be that. Uh, and it didn't exactly work out. Coppola, not a hippie. <laughs> All right, not well, old, but not a hippie. All right, let's do this plot. Like, what's, the, what's the Cliff Notes version of this very long movie? All right, so... Uh, Fred Astaire is Finian, McGlonagan. Uh, he and his daughter leave Ireland for Miss Kentucky, USA, which is near Fort Knox. Now, Finian has stolen a pot of gold from a leprechaun, and he believes that if he buries it in ground near Fort Knox, the gold will multiply. Uh, but... That's not really the plot of the film. <laughs> this area of Miskatucky called Rainbow Valley is about to be taken over by this uh, like greedy racist senator called Senator Rockins, played by Keenan Wynn. And just as he's about to take it over, the guy that owns the land, Woody, played by Dom Franks? Yep. He comes back and there's a big song about like Woody's coming, Woody's coming because this is a musical. If I haven't mentioned that, it's very important. Like Woody's coming, Woody's coming. Musicals Yay! love to like love to have songs about people that are going to show up. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, like you know, build anticipation for the character. It, it's uh, it's different on stage when like everyone's singing and then the character shows up, but this like movie intercuts it with footage of him like on a train with a guitar yeah he's like a young hip guy well his name's woody it's like woody yeah. guthrie you know riding on that train yeah he shows up uh he can pay most of the money not all of it 
but Finian pays the rest and thus becomes part owner of the land. Senator Rockins leaves and he's angry. He's like, I'll get you next time, Gadget, and <laughs> drives away. And now Finian owns part of the land. It's That's where he like lives in a little hermitage and buries his gold. Woody falls in love with Sharon. Yeah. Sure. There's Sharon. Uh, Woody's sister is Susan the Silent. And as one character says, uh, she don't do talk talk, she do foot talk. <laughs> when you hear that line in the first five minutes, uh, my reaction was, oh God. <laughs> and so Susan the Silent uh, dances and then uh, people interpret her dancing Somehow, she, yeah, yeah, is what she says. What she says. Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving lost, on. Lost you for a second. Yeah. Woody is uh, working with uh, a young uh, black man named Howard to invent a new type of mentholated tobacco that's going to save the uh, Rainbow Valley and make everyone rich, but he can't get it to burn. He's mixing menthol and tobacco, and he says it's it's worse than asbestos. It won't burn. Then the leprechaun whose gold Finian stole shows Og. up. His name is Og, played by Tommy Steele. Annoyingly played by Tommy Steele. <laughs> oh, boy. M- more on that later. <laughs> but he shows up, and he's telling Finian that all the leprechauns are losing... Power because this pot of gold has been stolen. They're, they're turning into like hu- regular humans. Yeah, he's turning right? mortal. Yeah. Uh, and so Og is there just kind of being a mischief maker and <laughs> following Finian around looking for his gold, and Finian reburies the gold. And then Finian gets credit, and there's a song about how Finian gets credit and how great credit is, <laughs> and now they can use that to fix up the town. Then the senator shows up again, and Sharon, I'm sorry, but there are two, <laughs> two female characters in this, this movie with similar Susan names. Susan and Sharon. Susan and Sharon. Uh, he shows up, and Sharon's like, oh, because he's so ra- the senator's so racist racist she says i wish you were black and she's standing near the pot of gold which doesn't grow it grants wishes like the gold grants wishes not the leprechaun itself yeah i always thought it was a leprechaun that grants a wish yeah. and so then the senator played by keenan Wynn, then turns black <laughs> so if you thought there wasn't going to be blackface in this you were wrong <laughs> though you might still be wrong because Keenan Wynn is in more of like an inhuman gray face. <laughs> That's true. That is true. He looks more like uh, you know one of something Lovecraft would describe in like the shadow <laughs> over Innsmouth. <laughs> it's really like it, blackface is always bad, but this is like gray. Yeah, it it's a gray so face. inhuman. <laughs> anyway, so he gets scared. He runs away. The. Uh, the lackey of the senator, the DA, he comes in, accuses Susan, accuses Sharon, I'm sorry, first of kidnapping the senator, then of being a witch. And so she gets sentenced to be burned at the stake, which in this case is like a barn, because uh, she and uh, Woody were going to get married. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the senator has learned that, you know, black people are just like white people and we can all get along. He meets a group of gospeliers and they're singing gospel music and they invite him to come sing with them and they're going back to Rainbow Valley. <laughs> and the gospeliers are actually quite entertaining. They're an amiable group of singers that are really good at singing. However, at this point in the movie, it's like two hours at least into this over two hour movie and you're like oh my god there's still new characters being introduced (laughs) if you have the time you know just keep keep it going so they take him back to rainbow valley uh susan sharon i i deeply apologize (laughs) of the leprechaun has he's found the pot of gold no Susan the Silent has found the pot of gold. Like, it just appeared to her. It was under a bridge. 
Og sees her, thinks that she is Sharon, who he's in love with, and then sees that she's actually Susan and decides, hey, you'll do too. The song he sings is like, it's called When I'm Not Near the Girl I Love, I Love the Girl I'm With, which is, that's a good way to uh, start a relationship, right? <laughs> eh, you'll do. Good enough. So then uh, you use, they use a second wish to wish the senator white again. And so now he's white, but he's learned to not be racist anymore. And then Og has to make the choice of wishing like himself to be immortal again or wishing Susan could talk. So she, he wishes her to talk and decides to be mortal with her. And then Finian decides, well, my work here is done. I'm going to go look for the rainbow. Finian's rainbow. <laughs> and Fred Astaire leaves the movie because it's over. <laughs> it's finally over. It's finally over. You this think... is a long movie. Uh, it's the longest one so far at 141 minutes. God. Couple will go longer. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. The Godfather is longer, but much better, and it feels le less long. Now, if, if, longer. if my description <laughs> was rambly and plotting... Sound like a fever dream. <laughs> you know, I apologize. It has been a while since I've seen But the movie itself movie. is rambling and long. Yes, so you did, it is no... you did it service to a movie that you're just like... While I was watching it, I was forgetting what was going on, because it's so rambling and long and confusing. There's no center to this film. Like, Finian is not the main character. Woody is not the main character. Og is not the main character. Sharon, played by Petula Clark, is not the main character. It's weird because it's based on a, a, an actual musical, and you'd think something written for the theater would have a little more of a tighter construct or something, because most do, yeah. you know. And this was, and a, this was a fairly loved uh, musical for its day. Yeah. And I guess Coppola added, he added the tobacco plot. He added that plot. That was his new idea, even though it, it doesn't have anything really to do with anything. But he, for some reason, wanted that in there. Uh, this movie is one of, those, one of the last movies to have... An overture at the beginning that was sort of a thing that was done away with once the 70s like I think there's still a few in the early 70s have an overture but then mm -hmm. that was not a thing anymore so much like movies yeah. for sure now don't have an overture it's kind of I, I think I guess it was at the time for people to be sitting down to so it's like oh yeah you showed up and now you have 10 minutes to hear the music of the movie and like a shorter version as you get your seat comfortably yeah because this the, was at the very tail end of movies not having show times, like they would just show and there'd be shorts and stuff that would show after slash before the movie and it would just play on a loop. And so the overture was a signal like, oh, the movie, the feature film is about to start. So if you got to go to the bathroom, go now. If you want to get snacks, get them now because the movie's about to start. Um, Warner Brothers... The execs at Warner Brothers thought that this was going to be a big hit. <laughs> they were feeling really good about it. Coppola was skeptical about it the whole time. But they felt really good about it. And even though they gave it a third of the budget of other bigger musicals being made at the time, this was only like three and a half million. And like a funny girl or star had like $12 million yeah. behind them. But this is like the era when like these types of movies are just bombing hard because the public didn't want movies like this anymore they wanted bonnie and clyde and the graduate and like easy rider and like things that were actually about yeah. what was going on in the world because so much was going on and to watch a three-hour fred astaire musical with leprechauns isn't what the youth wanted and it wasn't even really what grown-ups wanted it's like a movie that nobody really wanted and of course this movie i'm assuming was a horrible failure um the biography of coppola i'm reading uh says that it hit the box office like a boulder. <laughs> it somehow got like decent reviews. There yeah. were some positive reviews, some negative reviews. Roger Ebert said it was the best of the roadshow musicals. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so like the studios, they were so out of touch uh, for a bit of history. They were all still trying to capture like the sound of music the success of the sound of music which had an overture it was three hours long yeah it was a period piece and it's like hey that worked that made us all their money they were the superhero movies 
of their day. Yeah. So just like, let's dig up the old musicals. And keep it going. And keep it going. And Warner Brothers thought like, hey, this will be our big musical that we'll make a lot of money off of because we made it so cheap. Yeah. And they didn't. But like, this was 1968. And it was up against that year also movies like Star and Funny Girl and Oliver. Yeah, and Which, Oliver was did very well and won Best yeah, Picture. So like, best clearly, picture. a musical can still do well. Yeah, it's just this movie is just this clunky. It, it, it watching it reminded me of like Paint Your Wagon, which came out a year after this. We we're just like, oh, this movie's so long. It's so clunky. There's talented people involved, but nobody wants this. Like this is weird, clunky. Just like you're just like just like walking through mud just to get to the end of it. It's this, like, yeah, the plot is so convoluted. Like, even the plot of Sound of Music is more simple. It's just, like, you can figure out what's going on in that. It's pretty easy. But it's just, like, yeah. this is so unnecessarily complicated. For a movie, a musical about Leprechaun should not be hard to follow. And I think they try, the thing is they try to do two, it feels like three movies at once. And I think the better movie would have been a satire about the senator. Like, all that stuff's the best stuff. Like, you have this racist senator who turns black, and, like, he becomes this, he joins his band. And, like, all of that was the best part of the movie, and the stuff with the leprechaun in front of the start was really boring and dumb. Like, the funniest part of the movie is when the doctor, the scientist guy, goes to, has to go and work for the racist senator, and he is told, basically, he needs to, like, be a more of a racist caricature of an African-American, he needs basically. to be more of a Sambo. Like, you have to act like, you know how they did in Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation, and they actually reference those movies. And then there's this great part where Keenan Wynn is like, he's choking, I think, or something. He, he's coffee. There's something. He's just he's, gotten bad he needs news. Help. Yeah. He needs help, and he's asking for the, the guy to come and help him, but then he's already been told to like act like this racist version of a, of, a, of a black person. So he's pulling on this whole like step-and-fetch sort of character and walking very slow and, put, and like really doing <laughs> up this, uh, this kind of caricature of a... Of, of like what a black person should be in a racing person's <laughs> mind and that part is really good and really it's funny it's really funny and that act part actually feels very modern and very, I laughed out loud that, that part. feels it's modern great. and like good satire and very of its time of like oh this is some good 1960 like it feels like some that would be in like a Mel Brooks movie or something that and that's the only good part of the three that scene <laughs> that scene fades because that moment in the play always got a huge laugh that they'd have to wait for the audience to stop before they could go on to the next scene. Mm-hmm. And it worked again in the movie. And Al Freeman Jr. I think is the best actor in the movie too, who plays yeah. that character. And he he's a good actor. He was in he was in Homicide, Life on the Street. He was in I think Law and Order. Like he is no longer with us, but he was a very good solid. I think he was a theater actor who then dabbled in movies and TV and was also very good. Um, Keenan Wynn is also great. I like he's always, but he's basically playing the character he does in every Disney movie, like this, the Shaggy Da, whichever Herbie movie. He's a bad guy. And he always plays like the gruff man with money who wants to ruin everyone's good time. Uh, I, I love Keenan Wynn, not just because he looks exactly like my father, because he does, but there's just something. There's, he he plays a good villain, and this character is very interesting because he says a lot of stuff that feels very Trumpy. Like, he says things that feels very much of now. Like, he has one of his slogans is, moving forward to yesterday, which is basically make America <laughs> make great, great again. again. Yeah. And then he had a great thing of, like, ah, I've had trouble with immigrants ever since I came to this country. And that's very <laughs> funny. Uh, and those, those that, so that, I feel like they really missed out. Like, I mean, I know this is based on a play. But, like, when updating it, I think they missed out on it. They should have just made it more about his character. And that would have been a really good... Satire that would have fit really well with like the satires of this era, you know, like that could have been like a Robert Downey, like Putney Swip sort of movie. If you just have this satire about this racist guy turning black and like just living in the South, like that's like that's a good eighty-minute movie. But then instead, yeah. we get like a good thirty-minute movie within this horrible three-hour clunky musical. Um, yeah, and it's like it's crazy that it starts Fred Astaire because you don't really get any very good. Scenes of him really doing, doing his anything dancing, or like his dancing. dancing. And I mean, he he's an old man by this point. Um, like uh, in 1957, he was in Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, like ten full ten years before they shot this, and in that movie, he does not do a lot of heavy dancing because he knew he was 
that he, you know he didn't have it in him anymore to be that that uh, that physical. So this is ten years after that. There's still a few dance numbers in it, but here's what happened with the dance numbers. One, uh, Fred Astaire's best friend and choreographer Hermes Pan, who uh, with Astaire choreographed all the dances in all the Fred Astaire movies. Like he's responsible for creating those. They were such good friends that they looked almost exactly alike to the point that their own family members couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> Interesting. So Fred Astaire says he'll do the movie, but Hermes Pan has to come do the choreography. And then halfway through the movie, Coppola decides to fire Hermes Pan and do the choreography himself. <laughs> and you can really tell that there's not a lot of choreography in this movie. It's in crowd scenes, a lot of people kind of just like shaking their hands or shaking the legs. <laughs> I mean, whether they're dancers or not, they're dancing the way that non-dancers would act if you told them like, all right, now just stand in the background and, and dance. <laughs> or the way that dancer, professional dancers would dance if they had no idea what they were doing. So there's like one scene where Fred Astaire dances with a cane. That's exactly what you want. But when Warner Brothers decided that this is going to be a big uh, roadshow musical, they blew up the movie to 70 millimeter, which it was not shot in. And when they did that, they, they cut off Fred Astaire's feet. So you couldn't see... See the man, the, the famous dancer dancing. You yeah, you couldn't see, see the famous dancer dancing. <laughs> Fred Astaire, who insisted in all his old classic movies that he be shot from head to foot in like as long and unbroken a take as possible... And now you don't see his feet. But for the DVD, uh, it was restored. So you do see his feet in certain scenes. And other scenes you don't. And that is chalked up. Coppola admittedly chalks up to just him being, you know, still a, a novice filmmaker. Yeah, the, yeah the, the dance scenes definitely don't have the grace and style of even, like, some of the worst musicals that I've seen. Like, and the music is totally forgettable. I can't remember a single song, which is not good for a musical, because usually like, you get something stuck in your head. The only, and this one, I got nothing the, the, stuck in my the head. The only song I felt like I had heard before um, is How Are Things in Glockamora. And I don't know if it's because I've actually heard it before in real life, or it just has a familiar tune. Like, how are things in Glockamora? <laughs> da, 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 da. It, it's a, it's a nice song. It's fine. And uh, they, <laughs> yeah, Fred Astaire and Sharon say they're from Glockamora, and at the end you find out Glockamora is the um, place over the rainbow where you don't have any problems and everything's okay. And yeah. uh, the other person who was like Fred Astaire, very famous dancer, and the other person who was like already a singer before this was uh, Tommy Steele, was a like a British pop star of the '60s. Uh, he has a terrible screen presence. I don't he know what his I don't know what his God. presence was like on stage when he sang, but he's always kind of got this smile on his face, like he knows. He's doing something amusing, like he just like he doesn't. And and my wife pointed out he's got this interesting trait of like from the wide shots you think he's kind of handsome, but then when the camera comes in close, you realize he's not handsome at all. He's just like a goofy looking guy. He is he is quite <laughs> goofy looking in the close ups, and he's acting crazy. He's acting insane. He is manic and annoying. And overly theatrical. Not yeah, it's not movie acting. Like there's, you don't have to play to the back row in a movie. The in all the wrong ways. Does, yeah. does that for you? And uh, the pro like the problem with that is, first of all, it's annoying. So I don't like it when he's on screen. But then it turns out that the emotional climax of the film happens with him, not with Finian or Woody or with Sharon, but with him deciding if he's gonna stay mortal with with Susan or not, and like. Well, that comes out of nowhere. I didn't know Og was the center of the movie. He's acting like if Davy Jones had to be pretend to be a leprechaun in an episode of The Monkeys. <laughs> except even D Davy Jones... But not as good as Davy Jones would do Yeah, except it. Davy Jones wouldn't even go this over-the-top and garish. He'd have to get Mickey Dolenz to do it. Because he was the real hand. It's like if Davy Jones was doing a Mickey Dolenz impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> He's terrible. And... 
The uh, Petula Clark is an actual singer. She was probably the best of all the singers in the yeah, movie. Yeah, her um, but it, downtown was already a hit by this point. But again, yeah. uh, like with Tommy's, like her screen presence is kind of bland. It's just like there's, there's nothing not a lot really to her character. there. And then you had uh, Barbara Hancock's the silent lady. She was a trained ballet lady, but you couldn't tell because of the horrible. Because again. Know, Choreography. <laughs> choreography from someone who, like, the only background Coppola had in choreography was choreographing, uh, like, student plays when he was at Hofstra and uh, USC. Yeah. So she's, her talents are kind of wasted. She's just kind of a pretty lady doing these weird little dances, and everyone interprets it as the thing. And then Woody, Don Franks, that guy is a total dud. He kind of looks like a Duplass brother. Like, he should be a Duplass brother. Yeah. And you might know him he's, from he was the sheriff in My Bloody Valentine. Oh. He's like the older guy trying to figure everything out in that. Yeah. But in this, he just has not, there's just Don nothing. Don Franks is is shockingly average. <laughs> uh, is he, it shocking? You've never heard of him. <laughs> well, Coppola and him did not get along on set. And in the commentary, Coppola talks about this and says like that he was too like new as a filmmaker to realize that... Don Franks was like staying in character the whole time, <laughs> and so he thought Don Franks was just being standoffish. But like later on, he realized like, oh, he's just you know he's just staying in character. Not that there was a lot going on with that character. Again, like Woody, there's a big song about how Woody is is coming. Like we're all excited, Woody's coming, and at this crucial moment when Rainbow Valley is about to be sold to the villain of uh, of the musical. And then Woody's not the hero of the movie. Mm-mm. He's just the guy to fall in love with Fred Astaire's yeah. daughter. And this isn't even like, is this the closest analog I could think of is like a, a Marx Brothers movie. Uh, no, Harpo, Chico, and Groucho doing crazy things. And then Zeppo like, has the, like, the, the love story. Or there's the the love story, and that separate from the plot of the other separate thing from Groucho's trying to steal Margaret Dumont's money. Yeah, yeah. There's there's the love story between uh, Frank's and Petula Clark that doesn't really have anything to do with Finian mm-hmm. and and Og, <laughs> which, like again, like. I, I would say that that was the A story, but there is no really. There is no A story. They're all C story. stories. The whole movie is just like these stories you cut out. And it doesn't, but it doesn't feel like an ensemble movie, like mm-hmm. a like a Robert Altman movie or you know Shortcuts or Magnolia. No, it's just like a bunch of stuff happening, and it takes forever. And the it's weird because you can see little. Pieces of Coppola being a good director. There's like, like most of it feels really flat and on an obvious soundstage, and it just isn't very good. But like the the song we talked about with Woody coming when on the train, there's all these interesting like jump cuts, and there's that quick where the camera's going really fast through the through the train, almost like a Barry Sonnenfeld shot sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's like, oh, that's interesting. And then that's the only time that happens. The rest of the time is like sort of like, here's a wide shot of a scene. Here's some coverage of that scene. It's not. The, the, the montage of the, when Kenny Wynn joins the musical group and they're driving around, that, there's a lot of good shots in there. That's done, uh, um, that's done on location with like a helicopter. Yeah. And the, actually the opening credits where they're just walking through like every famous city in America, that must have taken forever and that was interesting of them. Like they're walking through San Francisco and they're walking through this just for the opening credits. And then the rest, and then the rest of the movie are just on this terrible stage. Yeah. And it doesn't – it's for a movie in 1968 – it just it just feels so dated. They, like it must have um, for people being like, we don't want to see a thing like Sound of Music. She's actually in these rolling hills and she's running around and like, yeah. like like we're used to you know big like movies like Doctor Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia and movies where yeah. they're in location. We don't need these fake woods where people are like dancing around. This it's just, uh, it's must awful. have been ironic uh, for Coppola, who is now making a big studio movie. But in the style of how he would make movies with Roger Corman, like this, the sets look obviously fake, cheap, because in part because they are leftover sets from the musical Camelot. <laughs> Were they really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the way when he got to make uh, like Dementia Thirteen, where they were making the Haunted Palace, they, or the Terror, they had to use leftover sets from the Haunted Palace. Yeah. Yeah. This was the last movie made on the old Warner's lot. They were about to tear it down, so that's why they didn't 
want to build anything new because mm-hmm. Warner's had just been sold well, had just been sold to Seven Arts, so there was like a new company emerging. I wonder if this movie was a hit, what would couple is like? Would this have changed his whole trajectory as a filmmaker? Like, if this movie was a huge success, would it, he have made the Rain People the next year? Would he have made the Godfather a few years after? Like, or would he be making big bloated movies until eventually they weren't allowed to do it anymore? Who um, who knows? Because like, yeah, he was skeptical throughout all of filming this movie to the point that when filming wrapped. He knew that if this movie flopped, it wouldn't it wouldn't be good news for him. So he secured funding for the Rain People, like as Finian's Rainbow was finishing, so that he could just jump right, right into, into the Rain People, which is a small, intimate movie mm-hmm. of the kind he really wanted to make. Yeah, uh, you know this. It feels to me like <laughs> it, it's not a perfect comparison, but like. Mall rats. This is like Coppola's Mall Rats. <laughs> like he's got the movie that announces his presence, and it's got this new, fresh feel, like Kevin Smith did with Clerks, and like, whoa, like it's you know just about young people being young, and we've never seen it told like that before. And this kid's got a voice, and then the studio snatches him up. Like, okay, now you make a studio movie, even though your style doesn't mesh with the the studio style. And so then it's big, Mallrats is big and colorful, like a studio movie, but it's got Kevin Smith's dialogue, and there's this big disconnect in that movie. And then, after that, he goes back to basics and makes a low-budget movie with his friends, just about characters dealing with their emotions, chasing Amy, which uh, I think is great. And after Finian's Rainbow, Coppola does something small and intimate, makes the rain people and then he's able to make big movies again but better and more and more personal like godfather is not a low budget movie but he was able to make it i think it also was like he needed to wait a few years for people to completely invest into like okay we can put money into like these challenging movies as opposed to these stupid things the audiences actually want to see a better movie than some stupid crap in a way he needed a big studio flop with mistakes in it to, to learn yeah in a way yeah I agree um, yeah I will I hope to never watch this movie again <laughs> I say this movie is only interesting if you're like a Fred Astaire completist or, just or if you're s- a Coppola completist <laughs> it's interesting too that like so it's it's funny he's like one of the few like out of all the people who rose to become an interesting filmmaker in the 70s like of his group of like Spielberg and Scorsese and and uh, all these people like only him and Friedkin kind of had the the little bit before that the other guys didn't have like Scorsese and Spielberg and De Palma all kind of did these weird little things and then they chose to make big bloated things at the end of the 70s like with 1941 in New York New York they're like oh let's make some big thing like when Hollywood didn't know what to do and we'll make our musical we'll make our big comedy <laughs> and then of course they failed but they intentionally wanted to try it out and but it's like Coppola and like William Friedkin were a little older maybe or they just like had the know-how to like get in, like get in the Hollywood right before it kind of broke into this this kind of film school 70s new Hollywood and so they made like Friedkin made the Sonny and Cher movie Good Time and then Coppola made this and then those movies flopped and then they were able to then move into these interesting things in the 70s so it's interesting that they have sort of like a little just a little taste of the of the end of Hollywood of, of old Hollywood the studio system and then went into mm-hmm. new Hollywood and then went back to making these big mistakes again in the end of like the 70s, early 80s, yeah. where Coppola did one from the heart, which did not do well, and freaking did Sorcerer, I think, which didn't do well. Yeah. Is that the big... Yeah. So it just it's, it's interesting to see these two guys, they were able to fit one in. They were able to fit one big stupid thing before they were the freedom to do like only interesting stuff through the entire 70s. But I think Coppola, out of all the people of his generation, like really was more into the studio system in a way like he knew how to play it even though he not all the movies were great like even into the 70s he's still a screenwriter for hire for things we'll review those movies too so he still isn't totally like 
wanting to run around making just experimental stuff. He kind of wants to do both or try them both out. And uh, one the one interesting story that on the commentary that I liked was that there was a kid, a film school student, who won a contest. And he his, the, the winner of this contest got to be on the set of Finney's Rainbow to see how a Hollywood movie is made. And that person was George Lucas. And that's how George Lucas and Coppola met. He was just on the set, just milling around watching it uh, be made. And at the time, George Lucas was making very weird experimental things. This is like pre-THX1138. Um, but it's just interesting to think of just like little nerdy George Lucas on the set of this movie and being like, well, I want to make something. I don't want to make this big yeah. thing like this. I'm going to make my weird little arty sci-fi thing. Uh, according to what I've read, um, uh, Lucas had the run of the whole lot. He could go into any department and just like ask questions. But the studio was, sh- when I say studio, I mean like old Hollywood, like they've got sound stages and here's the part of uh, our back lot that's made up to look like New York and here's one that's made up to look like Chicago and like, oh, like over there is the dusty area where we film westerns. And they were selling off all that and were basically just going to be a set of offices that green lights movies to be shot on location so most of that was shut down he was really interested in the animation department which had been shut down and the only thing filming at the time was Finian's rainbow yeah and he wasn't really interested in that style of filmmaking but him and coppola like they had a good uh rapport they hit it off and coppola was like well I'll f- you're not interested i'll find you stuff to do and basically just said like you know stick with me after this we're gonna make the movies we want to make <laughs> and he was right yeah <laughs> and then he was the only one to f- yeah and lucas figured out how to later make a big hollywood movie that actually did very well that was much left yeah the phantom menace <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah um coppola meeting george lucas like the beginning of that friendship and like and then long term thus enabling Star Wars to exist so really this failure of a movie is why Star Wars exists yeah why not yeah (laughs) that's the most interesting thing about Finian's Rainbow Um, I do want to mention that because this uh, musical does try to touch on like racial politics and class there's a song about the differences between like a, a rich people and poor people. Like if a poor person, you know, drinks on a, on a Sunday, he's a drunk. But if a rich person drinks on a Sunday, he's, you know, a, a sophisticate or something. Uh, and that was, it was progressive for its time, for the late 1940s. And the original script which had it updated for the 60s Coppola knew wouldn't fly because the civil rights movement was like really happening you know like full force so he decided it should be set kind of out of time Mm -hmm. so like all the cars are kind of old but the uh, young people they have like modern hairstyles he tried to choreograph things like modern like when uh, the senators trying to kick everyone out of Rainbow Valley. They all sit down because of sit-ins were a thing at the time. And the reason he fired Hermes Pan is because he thought Hermes Pan was doing this like old-style choreography, and he wanted it like new and modern because he thought if it took place out of time, then it could still say something about the about race and social class. And it didn't really work. Like he, he's right, it would this it would have been like way way off the mark if it, this film had explicitly taken place in 1967 or 68. But even as such, just because of the time the film was released in, it's like okay, this film is addressing racism in a very like light way, you know, in a way that would have been like oh yeah, like progressive and. Uh, daring in 1947 but 20 years later it's still out of date no matter (laughs) when when the actual movie when the actual story takes place yeah (laughs) did this get nominated for any Oscars or anything did anyone care like award season was this like or was this completely just forgotten about and swept under the, the rug 
For the uh, second time in a row, Coppola directed a movie nominated for Oscars. What 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 Oscar for this one? This was nominated for uh, best score and best sound. Hmm. How could it, it be score though if it was already a musical that existed? None of it was written for the movie, was it? Um, it's best score of a motion picture, original or adaptation. Oh, you so, don't do that anymore. Yeah. So that's how it got in. It was up against. Oliver, Funny Girl, Star, and the Young Girls of Rochefort. Hmm. Uh, for best sound, it was up against, and it was just in general sound. What, what what one score? Oliver, I'm guessing. Oliver, yeah. Uh, sound, it was up against Oliver, Bullet, Funny Girl, and Star. And Oliver won that one. <laughs> Over <So>. Bullet. So <laughs> <laughs> um. yeah, so you see, like there are there were big. These big roadshow musicals like Still Oliver, doing well, yeah. Funny Girl Star. I, I've never seen Oliver. Oliver's great, but Funny Girl has a like a modern feel to it. You know, it doesn't feel like it's something from the past. Yeah, Finian's Rainbow feels like it is from the past, and basically the attitude towards it was people that had seen the play weren't interested in watching a new movie about it twenty years later, and young people weren't interested in, in these <laughs> big these big overly sentimental uh, musical road shows anymore. This was released in October of 1968 after Martin Luther King is assassinated, after Bobby Kennedy's assassinate, assassinated, Ted Offensive happened, Vietnam is like really bad this year. So it's like not the time for I gotta bury this pot of cold and yeah. maybe it'll turn into a rainbow. For, not just for sentimental <laughs> movies because there's always, you know, escapism is always... Uh, has its purpose but for like overly ridiculous <laughs> sentiment <laughs> i think the truest critic was the dog in the movie who in one scene yawns and another scene looks in the camera kind of sad just like <laughs> wishes it wasn't in the movie good good for you dog actor <laughs> oh the second funniest moment in the movie involved a fake dog when um when the scientist howard goes to apply for a job at the racist senator's house, he knocks on the door, and the door opens just a crack, and a fake dog is thrown at him. <laughs> it's so obviously like a brown tube with a, a dog head sewn onto it that gets thrown at him, and then um, and then cut to like a real dog on top of him. And the senator's lackey comes off, and he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry." Like you know, that's just how that dog is with uh, with colored people. I'm excited for the rain people next week because I know nothing about it. I know that it's his like a, him back to this kind of low budget, homemade, introspective sort of thing, a little arty. Uh, I'm I'm pumped. I think this will be. Maybe the first movie that I really, really like that we watch. That's my hope. I, because we're gonna get now. We're gonna finally get out of this sort of these kind of movies and get more into the the movies of the seventies that I like much more. I mean, we're still got Patton ahead of us and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm excited to see this like a, a weird tiny like what is your weird tiny movie you make after your big huge you know chance of making a Hollywood movie? Yeah, I. I don't remember if I've seen The Rain People. <laughs> I remember nothing of it if I have, so I'm going in sort of blank and fresh on it. Uh, yeah, I'm interested too. And this, even though it's not like his first quote-unquote modern film, it, it, it's a definitely like a different time period. Like, uh, You're a Big Boy Now is definitely like mid, mod mid-60s. And the Rain People, anything after 1968 just takes place in a different era. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, it'll be fun. And let's do it quicker than we did this one. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll, we can uh, do it. <laughs> I think we can do it. We'll work on that. We'll work on it. <laughs> Happy St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yeah. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Finian's yeah. Rainbow. Just in time. We, we planned it that way. Yeah, yeah, we did plan it that way. Like, you have <laughs> your spotted dick and your corned beef and cabbage and watch... 
a Finian's Rainbow, I'm sure it's on some streaming platform. Is it on Amazon or? Uh, I think you can uh, buy it off Amazon. Buy it off Amazon. It might know, be airing it, on TCM. <laughs> get it from your local library. If you're lucky enough to have a video store like we do, go to your video store, get a Finian's Rainbow. Just skip around. Just like kind of skip to the scenes that look fun to you. Yeah. You don't have to sit through the whole thing. It's okay. Um, yeah. yeah, oh boy, if, if you were watching along with us, uh, thank you for bearing through Finian's Rainbow. Uh, also, spoiler alert on Finian's Rainbow. Should that have come at the beginning of the podcast? I think they know what they're going to do. Uh, so uh, one spoiler, I guess, is there's no actual Irish people in this movie at all, as far as I can tell. No. I think they're all British or American. Yeah, Petula Clark is British. Yeah. Don Franks is... Canadian or Canadian. American, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. That's just how it was. You know what? Don't watch this. Just watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People instead for <laughs> Thanksgiving or for St. Patrick's Day. That's the better. That's the better. Yeah. That's the better one. Sean Connery, not Irish, but it doesn't matter. It's fine. Yes. All right. Uh, I guess we're done. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, rate and review us. Subscribe on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher Radio. Uh, I'll see about getting this on other podcast. I mean, other platforms. Uh, if you're in Austin, come by Vulcan Video. Stock up on movies uh, for your isolation. You know, we've got a lot of stuff not on streaming because you've already seen most of the stuff on streaming, and we all know you're. But uh, it's the dregs now. <laughs> you know, so come by. We'll, you know, we, we got quality stuff that never expires. It's a true story. All right. Uh, well, thank you for listening. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Director's Wall, and we'll uh, see you next time for the Rain People. Oh boy! When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help. I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown.